Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Watch Hacks, streaming exclusively on Max, and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother, Jonah. We're two siblings who love to talk about our childhood and nostalgia and how it shaped us into the people we are today. Who are pretty cool dudes, if I do say so myself. Welcome to How Did We Get Weird. So Jonah, I know we're both really excited about our guest today, and I thought we could talk really quickly about when we actually met him, which, spoiler alert, was another time when you almost had a panic attack. Yes, I got very <laughs> nervous meeting today's guest and his wife. We were we were in Portland, Oregon. Yes, yes. And were you shooting Portlandia, or I were you think, just hanging out? I think I was shooting Portlandia. Wait, wait a second. I'm not sure because I think we were staying at Fred Armisen's place. Right, that's right. So we were staying at Fred had this apartment and we we're staying at Fred Armisen's apartment and he was very nice. He got us like a fold out futon yeah. for me to sleep on. We, we He was not in town. He so wasn't there. It, maybe, maybe I was shooting Portlandia, but maybe it was like we got there a few days early or so. I don't know. We were visiting Portland's for some reason. Or maybe we just like broke into Fred's apartment. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Somehow we're, we're in his apartment. He wasn't there. Yes. Yeah. But very nice of him to to let us use it. And I remember you were talking to him or something and you were like, Fred has these friends, Lance and Corin, and they're they're gonna they can go out to dinner with us tonight. And then I sort of started thinking about it and I was like, Okay, I think this is Lance Bangs and Corin Tucker from Slater Kinney. And then I started looking up all the stuff Lance had did and then I was like, Okay, I can't go. Like I can't do this. This is just like too much for me to deal with. I'm not like prepared mentally. This guy's worked with so many of these artists. I've like followed his work for so long and I was completely freaked out. Um, But you, you kept it cool. Well, I think sometimes you know who really cool people are. And because I'm not as cool as you, I don't know who, or I'm not as familiar with their work. So it allows me to keep it cool. And then once I learn more about what they've done, then I'm like, why wasn't I freaking out the whole time? But then also I think from my experience at SNL where we were constantly like, you know, there were cool people around all the time, guests and stuff that I, I kind of learned how to keep my cool. 
Yeah. So I would say it was a mix of those two things. I remember, yeah, I was like, I have some friends who record Dave Fridman. Like, I don't know Dave Fridman. I was just looking for any sort of reference yeah, I you could were, prove to sort of prove I was cool too. Yeah, yeah. But, and, Lan- and Lance and Corn took us out to like a really nice restaurant. Really nice restaurant. So and nice. Then, then I think Lance took us out after and he was like, this is oh, we a, went, yes. a bar that Elliot Smith used to hang out at. This He kind of gave us a tour of all these cool places we probably never would have figured out on our own, which was so nice. And yeah. so cool for people he didn't even know. They didn't even know. So that yes. was Yeah, that incredible. was so nice. They did they didn't know us at all. They just knew that we were friends of Fred's and they were friends yeah. of Fred's. And by the way, once we introduce our guest, I want to hear if if he thought that you played it cool that night or not. Okay. Okay. <laughs> great, great. Well, let's just get into it. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't figured it out yet, our guest today is a filmmaker. Um, he's worked with, you know, directed music videos and comedy specials, worked with bands like Green Day, Death Cab for Cutie, REM, George Harrison. He's done specials for Fred Armisen, David Cross. He's worked with all the Jackass shows and movies. So much that we don't have enough time to go through yes, his whole resume. No but way. let's just please welcome our friend Lance Bangs. Hey, Lance. Hello. Good to see you both <laughs> and speak to you. <laughs> you too. You so too. What's, what's your memory of that experience, Lance? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I was familiar with, with Vanessa as a performer at that time, but uh, hadn't met the two of you in person or hung out with, with you, Jonah. And so... I do love the adventure of showing people around. I I like traveling. I like ner- learning how to move around different cities and different parts of the world. And so if I can ever catch up with someone somewhere and take them to like a great place to hang out or have a conversation or look at water moving or anything like that, I'm always open. And so it felt good to be able to, uh, with my wife, Corin, show the two of you around Portland and and give you a sense of things that you might not have already stumbled into on your own. Did you think that I was like a cool music guy or did you think I'm just this kind of weird? I guess I've, yeah, never, I've never judged people about coolness. Like I just like humans and I like conversation and I'm not like tallying any score of uh, scene points or anything. I, I just like the world and the people in it. Fair enough. Well, I think that's a great answer. Um, yeah. I'm just glad I didn't embarrass myself. I was very nervous, but I hope there's, I didn't. There's I, no embarrassment in, in my, uh, who I move around with or who I spend time with. Okay. Incredible. And then, yeah, and and we've, you know, Lance did my old podcast and um, yeah, Lance, obviously, I think I saw you did that. So you were involved with that Slint film as well. Yeah, I think I, I saw a, you. a movie about the, the band Slint that and, we spoke about. Yes. And just, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I recently got to work with Lance because he was directing this video for George Harrison for his estate and and... I got to be a part of it with so many other cool people, so many other cool musicians. And it was truly an incredible thing to get to do. And yeah, just... Yeah, that that was... I'm so happy that you were available to do that and jumped in and, and elevated and made everything better. That was a sort of a short film and music video for the song My Sweet Lord by George Harrison. It was around the 50th anniversary of, of the release of uh, that great triple album that he put out after the Beatles. Yeah. And... There had never really been a music video for My Sweet Lord. And so his estate and his management, uh, David Zonshine and Olivia and and Danny, asked if I would make like a film and video to go with that song and wrote a script that that called for two people to be kind of exploring and looking, but kind of missing signs that were around them and <laughs> thought that you and Fred would be a great combination for that. And you were excellent in it. Thank you so much. It was so cool to be a part of it. And um, just, wow. That's just wow. (laughs) (laughs) So Lance, you, is this true you were born in Sacramento? Is that where you grew up? 
That's correct. I was born at uh, like the American River Hospital in Sacramento. My dad was in the Air Force. And so we were only there for something like maybe 10 days when I was born and then had to kind of move other places. And so I, I didn't really like have any memories or formative stuff from Sacramento, but went from there to Colorado and Texas and Omaha, Nebraska and Valdosta, Georgia, um, Montgomery, Alabama, different parts of upstate New York, uh, different parts of central New Jersey. Wow. Like Willingboro, Smithville, Mount Holly, East Hampton. And then left home and went down to Athens, Georgia, which was primarily where I spent like the 1990s, mostly living and being based, but I would travel a lot to make things. Started visiting Portland, Oregon in 1992 and met Rebecca Gates from the Spinanes and Elliot Smith and a band called Hazel that I really adored and would feel so great in Portland that I started just like renting a cheap room in a group house with musicians and leaving some books and records in a mattress in Portland, but mostly living in Athens, Georgia and kind of going back and forth. And they were both remarkable cultural scenes throughout the 90s and inexpensive to kind of live or be based out of. But then I didn't really work in either place as much as I would go work in like New York or LA or London or places where there were like films to be made. Well, you know, it's interesting because I feel like, you know, all these places, but, you know, specifically, I guess I'm thinking of Athens, like you were there during such a special time and place. Like, it seems like you keep kind of landing in these places, like Elephant Six and REM, like you keep landing in these places while these incredible things are happening and you're able to sort of document it. Yeah. I don't know, Vanessa, if you've like listened to this stuff, but while I was in Athens, there was a, a great sense of like the work that Pylon and the B-52s and REM had done at the sort of late 70s, early 80s and everything that they built up. And that drew a lot of people like myself to Athens. Uh -huh. um, once I was there in the early 1990s, there was a sense that bands needed to kind of like react against that sort of like pop or jangly guitar or catchy thing. So there were a lot of like very kind of heavy, deliberately noisy, non-commercial bands that were active in the early 90s. But then young people from Ruston, Louisiana, uh, Jeff Mangum, Will Cullen Hart, Bill Doss, a whole bunch of their friends, all moved from Ruston to Athens, Georgia, around like 93 or so, and started playing in their early versions of Neutral Hotel and Olivia Tremor Control and Circulatory System and all these great bands that felt like they were doing things that were melodic or had interesting visuals in their lyrics and building a real community that, that Jonah kind of referred to of this like Elephant Six uh, scene that went on there throughout the 90s. And I ended up being roommates with uh, Jeff Mangum and other members of Neutral Hotel and Elf Power and the Music Tapes and Olivia Turner Control while they were at that kind of peak moment of the release of An Aeroplane Over the Sea and touring for that. And then was roommates with Jeff Mangum when he sort of stopped being a public figure and just kind of stayed in the room and worked on things personally, but wasn't accepting all the offers to go tour or play live shows or make a follow-up record to In the Aeroplane and really treasured that friendship and that time in my life and shot a lot of footage during that era and have completed a feature film that'll be out later this summer called The Elephant Six Recording Company, along with uh, Chad, Chad Stockleth from Louisville, Kentucky, a uh, producer from Los Angeles named Rob Hatchmiller and a great editor named Greg King. We made like an entire feature film that we're very proud of about that whole music scene in Athens. And I look forward to both of you seeing it. Oh, man. Oh, we look wow. forward to it as well. Yeah. 
this is so much like my experience being Jonah's sister is like hearing all this cool stuff and like just feeling like I know like one or two things. Like it, I just, but I'm very comfortable in this space of being like the much less cool, like, but just knowing I can tell from the reaction on Jonah's face that like what you're saying is so incredible. And I wish that I had more familiarity with it, but I truly can't wait to see this film. And I also like everything you do, Lance, is so great. And it's always... I don't know. I'm I'm just I am very excited about it, even though it's stuff that Jonah has a lot more um <laughs> I think that you will love this film and the people in it and just watching these people create stuff and yeah. the bizarre, amazing things that were going on in that yeah. perfect setting. Totally. Well, Lance, I'm curious, you know, we had we recently had Amy Mann on the podcast and um we were talking about and this is not I don't want to get too in the in the weeds, but I'd like to hear your take on this. We were talking about the replacements book. And in the book, they're sort of talking about how they were almost had this rivalry with R.E.M., yeah. which was I never knew and is so interesting because I think of them as such different types of bands. And did you experience that at all? Was that a real, like, what was that like? What's yeah, your honestly, perspective? Yeah, like, the personalities of the guys in R.E.M. and who they chose to work with, they were not competitive. They were not, like, in my experience, they weren't like, oh, we got to outperform Radiohead this tour cycle or anything like that. They were always sort of like, mentoring or you know willing to kind of help get into the studio or give advice about whether or not to sign to a particular record label to all the other great musicians that were doing things from that sort of american independent music scene of the 1980s not only that but like they would take people from england under their wing and they would like help billy bragg or robin hitchcock or people that they admired that were of a sensibility of like making internal self-fulfilling music from anywhere that that crossed their path I think that there was a different energy in the replacements who are a band that I love and admire, where they might have had a little bit more of a like, ah, like we're going to fuck with Husker Du in this dressing room and detune right. their amp and they won't know it. Or, you know, th they had a bit more of that to them and often self-sabotage and often like, yes. you know, uh, fucking with each other in a way that was detrimental to like the potential larger audience that they could have got their music in front of had they maybe been less... I don't know. I think that like you could objectively say that there was some insecurity or self-sabotage among certain dynamics of the replacements and their music. Is that fair? Abs I think so. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So love them, but like I they may have been competitive, but I don't feel like Ari and were competitive against them. Yeah. That makes sense. Yes. And honestly, like through REM, I spent time around the replacements. Like when they would if anyone, you know, from the replacements came through Georgia to do a replacement show or a solo Paul Westerberg show or a bash and pop show, Michael and Peter would always go support them and talk and give advice. And like, I definitely went into dressing rooms with Michael and Paul Westerberg when Michael would be giving all sorts of like positive support to Paul when he was like going to change labels or management or whatever. Like, you know, there's nothing but support and love from the R.E.M. guys that I ever saw for the replacements. That's great to hear because also I love Ariane. Right? So that's, they're <laughs> so great. great. Yeah. 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 Lance, I was also curious about, you know, when I was in college, I used to watch the CKY 2K video a lot. Yeah. Like, like a lot, a lot, me and my roommate, Bruce. And I'm curious, like, I know you worked on a lot of the Jackass stuff. Did that, did that come up? Was that afterwards or was that, like, how did that? I would say that, um. I, I met Spike Jones in the mid-90s and started working with him. He would bring me out to Los Angeles from Athens, Georgia. And he was really my sort of uh, connection into like what you might call like 
Hollywood or like mm-hmm. California stuff of working on like professional music videos and things like that or short films or just whatever stuff he wanted to make that I was like a good fit for. And he's been a great friend and colleague and supporter and collaborator artistically and all kinds of stuff since the mid 1990s. So I think that through him, he was friends with a lot of interesting characters. Like Johnny Knoxville was just like a writer who was like getting by as sort of like a character actor that would pop up and stuff here and there, but like a really interesting guy to talk to or go out to a bar with who was reading Patty Chayefsky and and thinking about the screenplay for a network and wow. just like a clever, interesting, fun, good to have a drink with guy. It was through him and his friendship with Spike and Jeff Tremaine, who was then like a childhood friend of Spike. When those guys started developing the TV show Jackass, they brought in the footage from CKY and, and Bam and DiCamillo and, and that crowd to kind of like add to it. And, and once it was time to start shooting the TV show and, and movies, that's when I met Bam and Ryan Dunn and Rake and DiCamillo and that crew and, and started making stuff with them. Yeah, that that's amazing. I, it, what's so weird is when I watch Hulu, if something ends, it defaults to this uh, family feud where it's the cast of Jackass. And so right. I, I, wow. I've seen it like so many times because it just <laughs> automatically comes on. So I, right. And I just end up usually just watching it again. Oh. Have you seen that? Yeah, it's great. They had a, they had a blast doing that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. Jonah, would you ever do Family Feud? Oh That's my God. a really good question. I, I would. I think we would do pretty well. I do too. I um, It's so funny. I had a talk with someone about this recently. Like, I think our family would kind of destroy. But I, <laughs> I just Who worry. Who would the other three members be, do you think? So wait, how many people are on the panel? I think it's five. I could be wrong, but I think it's five. I, yeah. I, I guess it would be mom, dad, you, and Vicky. Yeah. So my, yeah, my wife and then, yeah, our parents and you. Yeah. Yeah. And then I don't know who we play against. I think that family double dare, we would not do well. No. I, and I, actually, I don't want to play family double dare. Okay. Fair enough. Just because it's so messy, it feels um, humiliating. <laughs> <laughs> also, Let, I don't think family double dare. I think that'd be a harder because I think you'd have to bring it back. Because yeah, think yeah, right. Double that's not Dare a thing. came that's back. Actually still a thing, right? Lance, it would be so fun if we could go against your family. Even though I would, oh, I would love that. I would want <laughs> yes. both of our families to win. <laughs> I I think we would be strong competitors. I, I do a, too. Yeah. Oh, sorry. What were you going to say? I have a daughter, Glory, who's fifteen, and a son, Marshall, who's twenty-two. And I think that with Corin, we would really. Yeah. We'd be pretty solid. I kind of think you... I'm not saying this, Jonah, as an insult to our family, but I wonder if you might beat us just because you've got like some Gen Z in there and we're (laughs) pretty solidly millennial to boomers. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Millennials, millennial... What? Gen X? Is that what you are, Jonah? We're both on the cusp of... Either way, we're we're kind of we're kind of leaning boomer, heavy, <laughs> heavily leaning boomer, where you've, you've got like a more diverse um, setup in terms right of on. yeah. But it's not a competition. I, I what I would hope would be that we would tie in that we would both we'd win um, some vacation and all of us go together. Yeah, yes, exactly, yes. exactly. Yeah, Lance, like I I feel like this is me me maybe projecting a little bit and not your personality, but like. Speaking of like younger generations and stuff, do you ever feel <laughs> like does. I saw all these incredible artists and, you know, nothing's as good? And no. cause you, you seem like someone who's very up on current things, but I also feel like you were at so many amazing moments that I could see how you could be cynical, even though you're not 
I might be cynical if I were you. No, I, yeah, I don't have a strong cynical element to myself. I, I love the things that I put myself at and was present for. A lot of them were not accidents. A lot of them were because I could tell this is going to be great. Someone should be there to document this or share this with other people that can't hear it currently. Um, I definitely love going to see younger performers and new things that are happening now. I definitely go see weirdo comedians that might interest me. I go see writers that might interest me. I go see musicians or bands or performances or events that that could culturally excite me. And uh, yeah, I haven't like gotten cynical or I wouldn't judge anyone for what they were interested in. What about when... Oh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Vanessa. I was just going to say, I think that's a real sign of like a lot of people that I've met that are... It it reminds me, Jonah, your question reminds me of kind of what I asked Keenan about being on SNL and kind of being able to embrace the new people, but also, you know... Miss have nostalgia for the people that he was working with when he first started there and when he was younger and stuff like that. I think, I think when you're, I think a lot of really talented people, part of their one characteristic they have is that they can sort of appreciate things in the past, but also appreciate newer things. I don't mean to ramble about this, but I just think that that's such a great no, answer. No, I think that's Lance, a good point, and it, and it makes a lot of sense. Yeah going with your personality too, that like you're such a lovely person to be around and it makes sense that like you can, you're not like, oh, nothing's like when I was younger, you know, like. Yeah, I try not to go through the day being like, oh. (laughs) That's always a good sound to make. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, Jonah, what were you going to ask? Well, I was curious, like Lance, when you were younger, um, you're like little Lance, you know, bouncing around the country. Were you, did you also have that kind of excitement and curiosity? Like what were you kind of like as a kid? I was not, I was probably <laughs> enthusiastic about things that I was excited about, but okay. it's pretty internal. I, uh, I went through some like tough things and was kind of disassociated and living in an internal landscape of listening to music on headphones and reading and hiding from physical people <laughs> and okay. um, different military bases and, and kind of leaving uh, and hiding yeah. out wherever I could. So it wasn't until I kind of got down to Athens, Georgia, I guess no, when I was like in different parts of New Jersey around McGuire, Fort Dix military bases, I would cover a lot of ground. I would go see things at this great venue in Trenton, New Jersey called City Gardens. I would go up to New York City. I would go to Philadelphia. I would like drive or get rides with friends to go see as much as I could. And when I would have a chance to talk to a performer that I loved, that meant a lot to me to kind of like strike up a conversation with Jonathan Richmond or Robin Hitchcock or the guys in REM or the replacements or whatever. And that venue, City Gardens in Trent, New Jersey, was amazing and insane. The John Stewart was the bartender. James Murphy was one of the door guys. It was this cement bunker in a no man's land of like a, a place that you would take cars to strip them for parts and illegally run a racket in this lawless, very insane area of like beat up New Jersey. But performers that were based in New York or DC or wherever, you could safely go do a show here and there wouldn't be any writers from Rolling Stone that were going to be like, oh, the new songs are mediocre. Like right. you could safely go test out sure. your new Ramones album or Sonic Youth album or whatever in front of like mutant teenagers in <laughs> Trent, New Jersey without it, you know, damaging your, your trajectory or anything. It was wild. There were like insane battles, like, you know, sort of like skinheads and like Metallica moshing audience members. Like all of that was in the wasteland of New Jersey. And wow. it was insane. 
Yes, there's a documentary about it too. Is, yeah. I, I don't. Did you make it? I don't. I, I didn't assume make it, you no. make every um, documentary. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, basically, this guy named Randy Now that was like a mail carrier postman. He would take the money from his postal work and book the Beastie Boys and Butthole Surfers and Ween and Black Flag and Sonic Youth and the replacements to play shows for a very low ticket price in this cement bunker that previously was like a car dealership that had gone out of business. Literally, not exaggerating, not being hyperbolic, next to like a place where they would scrap cars and, you know, organized crime was all around and it was a dangerous place to be. And yeah, you, you would be like at risk going out to the parking lot if all the skinheads had been kicked out of the show because they might want to try and jump you. It was insane. And uh, yeah, pre-cell phone, pre-everyone having a digital camera or way to get safety, you would just hope that James Murphy would keep an eye on you as you walked out <laughs> to your car and the tires might be slashed. Oh my gosh. Yeah, because we had Chris Gethard on the podcast and I think we talked about Action Park, which was also right, yeah, kind of an exactly. outlaw New Jersey thing from the past. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of outlaw New Jersey. So I, I did cover a lot of ground and loved those bizarre places and I'm glad that other people have talked about them or verified that they weren't just in my imagination. Yeah, that must be very validating because it in is. retrospect, it probably feels like, did I just make that up? That's right? so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> But it also warped my perspective. Like, I didn't realize how rare that was. Like, I I thought that there were always going to be bartenders that were as funny as Jon Stewart or bouncers that were as cool sure. as young James Murphy. Or that I, I didn't understand that there were like, I don't know, 10 to 15 cities in America like that. I just thought that there would be like great record stores and Fugazi's coming to play two nights every spring <laughs> in everywhere and didn't realize like, like, oh, no, that's not really everywhere. Wow. Wow. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back with Lance Bangs. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia and Yellow, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks, streaming exclusively on Max, and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. And we're back with Lance Bangs. Uh, so, Lance, uh, you had so many great ideas for topics. Um, and, you know, one of your ideas was sort of these educational TV shows or movies we watched in school. And you recommended one called Cypher in the Snow, which me and Vanessa both watched. And I'm just curious sort of why this topic resonated with you and sort of what your experience was like this kind of as a kid. I just wanted to say it wasn't that you recommended it necessarily, but this was something that was definitely shown to you in school. Um, yeah, I would recommend it. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'll stand by it. Uh, essentially, when I looked at what your guests tend to talk about, I wasn't sure if the things that were formative in my childhood would have still mattered. I think you're probably, you know, nine or so years younger than myself. But the idea of something that you see that's like, what was that? Or why did someone show that to us as kids in a darkened room when maybe there's a substitute who's not available or someone gets ill and they just need to like pacify a classroom of 30 kids and keep them quiet for 20 minutes. And this genre of like educational films or kind of placeholders or things like that, there was this incredibly striking (laughs) film that was so emotionally (laughs) like baffling and formative uh, called Cypher in the Snow that I wanted to talk about. Lance, how would you kind of summarize the plot of Cypher in the Snow? Cypher in the Snow was made (laughs) at Brigham Young University by presumably Mormon students who had just been excited by maybe French New Wave or the first Robert Altman experimental films. So they're taking a 16-millimeter camera and putting it in places that it normally wouldn't get to go. They're zooming with the zoom lens during shots. They're doing overlapping dialogue, all kind of like experimental film processes that weren't normally happening in, you know, narrative films at that time yet. And it is a story about a young boy, eighth grade, basically Kurt Cobain, who is lonely on the back of a school bus. All the other kids are talking and socializing. No one's talking to this kid. He's in silhouette. He gets up quietly and moves in his denim outfit through all the kind of like "Ah, rambunctious kids who don't Mm -hmm. acknowledge him. He goes up to the bus driver. In the first minute of the film, he kind of quietly taps on the bus driver's shoulder. He's like, excuse me, I have to get off here. It's in the winter and the snow. The bus driver's like, we're not supposed to stop here. The bus driver like lets the kid off. He steps off of the bus and he dies. He falls <laughs> face first into the snow and it freeze frames and does an optical print of like the title Cypher in the Snow, like zero in the snow on the dead kid's face within the first minute of this like film for kids to watch. And then like a grumpy <laughs> teacher that was in the car in traffic behind the school bus who's kind of grumbling like oh great i'm behind the school bus we have to stop all the time he kind of gets out to try and tend to the kid all the other children come off the bus and they're like who's that kid did anyone know him like we don't know (laughs) like you know they don't even know the kid that just died because they so completely ostracized him and uh they put him on a stretcher they put him in the back of an ambulance you're seeing like 1973 Utah ambulances, which are basically like a station wagon painted orange. Everyone's wearing the clothing they would wear in 1973. And uh, and the kid's dead. And that's the beginning of this like 21 minute short film to show to children. And the idea is essentially that he was so neglected that he died of being erased, like becoming nothing, becoming a cipher, a zero. And so because no one paid attention or cared or acknowledged this kid, he just dies. So 
the teacher goes to the school and is kind of grumbling to like, you know, like, what are we like, you know, trying to research the kids' paper records and whoever working at the office administration is like, oh, it says here you were his favorite teacher. And the guy's like, I don't, I don't remember this kid. I, you know, and they look back at his previous stuff and he had like an IQ of 106 in first or second grade. Then his parents get divorced, which to the Mormons was like super bad. Right. And everything declines in his like academics. He writes some poems. You get reenactments and flashbacks of essentially like a young Kurt Cobain type of kid, like writing poems about frogs. I like frogs. Frogs are nice. You know, but no one's paying attention <laughs> to him. He gets bullied. Some mean kids like steal his hat and put it on a snowman. He essentially transfers his personality or persona or will to live into a snowman by taking the items out of his pocket and like making a face on a snowman as he's on the verge of tears after getting like bullied by other kids. And it's an amazing film. It's so emotionally resonant. There's some kind of like sad flute score over everything. It's only 20 minutes long. I saw it as a child, basically, you know, a situation you probably have been through where it's like, ah, like so-and-so can't stay this period. They've got to go. What do we do with these kids? Let's, let's close the shades and turn off the lights and run a 16 millimeter film on a projector made by the Mormons. And, uh, and it was so devastating and psychologically intense. And at the end of it, there's not enough people to go to the funeral. There's like a mom. He had like a stepdad that didn't really care and no friends. And so the teacher who barely knew him is like watching and the camera's down in the grave looking up at like the mom right. who's like, oh, I should have, I should have talked to him more, shouldn't I? And then, uh, Another sad Kurt Cobain child comes up to the the grumpy teacher and is like, hey, mister, can I talk to you? And the guy's like, not now. It's not a good time. And like shuts him down as well. And that kid kind of turns and starts to walk off very sad and dejected. And then there's a moment of recognition on the teacher's face. And he's like, wait a minute. And he leaves the funeral, abandoning the funeral <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to go talk to the, the kid who's like, oh, I'm going to be in your class next year. Could I get some help with math? So he's going to maybe like help future kids and not be such a closed off, you know, guy. But now it means that like poor Cliff Evans is being buried alone with only his mom who barely paid attention. So very intense, like, you, you know, they could have yeah. done it where the yeah. kid is in a coma, but they're like, no, let's have him die in the opening seconds. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, the point is it's supposed to be like, it's supposed to help with bullying and yes. stuff. I did <laughs> a couple, the couple of things that I noted about it. One yep. is... Everyone's reaction to this kid fully dying feels a little um, muted. Like yes. kids come off the bus and they're like, I've never seen a dead person before. And you're like, aren't you guys absolutely flipping out? Like you're looking at a dead body. And also the teacher's like, oh man, is he dead? It's like, guys, let's, what, let, like, what, wake up. And then even like when the, okay. And then, so the principal or something is like, there's like a little bit of a shady move pulled where yes. the principal's kind of like, uh, okay. He's like, do, he's like, do you know what happened? And that teacher who was like in the car, I think that was the teacher who was in the car behind yeah. the bus and he, the teacher comes in and he's like, yeah, he just like died. And the yep. principal's like, this is not good. And the principal's basically like, 
okay, um, could you tell the parents and the teachers <laughs> yes. like what? And he's like, yeah, he's like, he's like, you kind of, he said the kid said that you're his favorite teacher. And the teacher's like, oh yeah, I guess I like gave him a few notes. I like don't remember. He's like, yeah, would really love for you to tell the parents. And the, and the teacher's like to the principal, he's like, why can't you tell the parents? You're like the principal of school. And the principal's like, uh, I have a meeting in 10 minutes. It's like, <laughs> yes, exactly. why are we like treating this like well, somebody and- got the flu? Like, right, go ahead, Joe. Right. Go ahead. Well, then, the, then he follows up and asks the, same, the principal as the teacher to write the obituary for the kid. <laughs> yeah, he's like, right. he's like, oh, and also before I leave the office to go to my meeting in 10 minutes, could you also write an obituary? That would be great. And it's like, this principal actually sucks. Like he's the yes. true villain of the whole thing. But it's yeah. like, then this teacher's like, right. And then the teacher goes to the parents' house to tell them their son has died. And the mom's sort of like, yeah, I should have talked to him more. It's like, wouldn't you be like crying and freaking out if your son just died? The stepdad is like, uh, he was like a stupid kid. And the mom's yes. like, don't call him stupid. And it's like, wouldn't you be freaking out if your husband was calling your debt now debt, your son who just died stupid? So, so little, <laughs> so little emotion. Yeah. And then also I want to go to the bullying scene. So the scene that's supposed to be sort of like the big bullying, like, you know, they show they show different moments when this kid was sort of neglected and no one was really talking to him. But the bullying scene, there's these kids and they're making a snowman. And the snowman, <laughs> this I couldn't get out of my head. The snowman already has like three circles to it, which yes. generally that's what makes a snowman. <laughs> you're like you're complete. Sure. That's all you got. So then this kid is like rolling up a fourth circle and you're like, um, that's not how a snowman works. Like also... To the creators of this film, why wouldn't you just have two? It just It's just a little weird because wouldn't you just be like, they're done with the snowman. Like, I'm not going to add a fourth uh, fourth <laughs> circle to the snowman. It, it just, it, the whole thing to me, it read a little bit. I felt like the acting and emotion of it where I didn't even notice all the cool kind of revolutionary camera shots because I was so taken by the lack of emotion that someone died. It's also like if you're going to have someone die and make this big statement in the first minute of the film, you know, maybe follow up with people treating it like a death as opposed to, again, some kid like got the flu or something like that. Yeah. Jenna, what did you get out of it? Yeah. I I wasn't sure what to expect. You know, it didn't really remind me of a lot of stuff that we watched in school. Yeah. Like, and and that's kind of what I was thinking about a lot because I feel like when I was growing up, the media portrayed, like, when you're 16, you're going to watch all these really scary driving videos to, like, scare you from being responsible. I don't remember that ever happening. And I don't Mm -hmm. remember watching anything like this. So I was actually thinking, I wonder if, like, Culturally, like I graduated high school in 98. If these types of really kind of dark, like scare you into the message videos were kind of coming out of fashion a little bit. I I, I think you're right. I think that this, you know, when people, I I don't make a big deal about generational things. Like I just am curious about the world around me. But when people are like, oh, Gen X, we had it so much weirder than you got, you know, this is the sort of like, what the fuck were you doing to kids showing them this (laughs) type of a thing? Like, I think this might be where Janine Garofalo writes a Santa bit or whatever. Like, this is like something that might have been different in that age bracket of like what kids in the 70s or early 80s saw versus like a less crazy thing of a kid dying that might have been played yeah. through the best. Well, yeah. even like, I feel like after school specials were pretty big when we were kids, but I don't, I don't know, Lance, because you have kids, what they were watching when they were younger, like... 
did those sort of go away too? Because I remember the one for the love of Nancy with Tracy Gold about right. anorexia. Yeah. My friends and I would always say for the love of Nancy instead of for the love of God, because we thought we were so funny and honestly we were. <laughs> but like there was the anorexia one with her. Like that was such a popular thing that, and I feel like we watched some in school. But yeah, what, do you think that those were, were those still around? No, I think that, I think that it really was like throughout the 70s and 80s that there might've been these like bleak, pessimistic, bummer, warning things about like the dangers of someone that took LSD and jumped out of a window or a kid yeah. that held a friend's switchblade and then it turned out it was used in a stabbing and they got put in jail or things like that, that that were run as like after school specials or in school educational films. Yeah. I think that people realized that that was not that healthy to share to kids and yeah. probably stopped before my kids were in school. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And also it's interesting that this is like kind of a Mormon based thing. Cause I wonder the, like you said, sort of the message around divorce, like it, it does yeah. feel like there was a bit of, I would say maybe like an agenda with something yeah. like this as well. Yeah, for sure. And you know, the whole physical thing of this being like a 16 millimeter print that would be running with a beam of light going through the classroom and hitting a project, you know, like a, a screen and that kind of like, like yeah. sound running the whole yeah. time. It added to like the, mood and sadness of the whole experience yeah. in a way. But taking like what's normally like a brightly lit classroom and turning it into this like dark, weird dream state was also a, a strange thing to go through psychologically. And so I tracked down like a 60 millimeter print from libraries that were going to throw everything out when they were switching over to VHS and getting rid of like film and projectors and kept a couple prints of it and would like screen it for people to try and explain or show like can you believe that they showed this to us? Yeah. And uh, and then eventually the Mormons, like the Brigham Young University made like a DVD available. And I tracked that down through some like educational program. But now the the Mormons have put it up on YouTube. So anyone listening yeah. can, can search watch. for Cypher in the Snow and see like a, a decent scan of it. The Do other, you remember oh. what happened to you after you watched it that day? Because it seemed, would seem very strange yes. watching this in class and then just walking out into the hallway and being like, hey, like you want to play basketball at recess? Yeah, it definitely, you know, certainly related to the main kid and was kind of changing schools regularly. Like we'd go be stationed somewhere for, you know, not that long and go through like a year or two at one school district and then change or move from like, you know, there's like big cultural differences in that time period between Valdosta, Georgia, Montgomery, Alabama and like, New Jersey or New York State, like kids are all at a different age when they're in a certain grade. Like they might have started school at five in one part of the country and seven in another part of the country. Uh huh. So like your peers could be a foot taller than you or like think that like any accent that wasn't a deep South accent meant that you were like a Yankee. And yeah, you know, like there were just like weird cultural biases among random people at that time. So definitely felt a sense of identification with this quiet kid that was... uh being ignored or neglected and then dying in front of everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then uh, everyone being like, was he in our grade? Like I don't <laughs> like I don't remember him from last year. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I mean, I remember I remember being shown stuff at school, but not like we Jonah and I were talking about, we were shown like Square One, that show right. that was on TV. Jonah, um uh Voyage of the Mimi. Uh what's that? Jonah <laughs> it was, Voyage of the Mimi, I think it was one of what Ben Affleck was on it yeah. or something? It as was one kid. of his as a kid, and it was sort of this show that took place on like they would have adventures on like a boat. They would sail around and kind of like learn stuff about boating. And I just remember we would watch it in school all the time. And then it's on YouTube, and all the comments are like, "I remember watching this in school in like the eighties. 
Is it Ben Affleck as like a teenager or late teen or how old is he? In this? He's a pretty young kid, right? Yeah, or, he's would pretty you say young. Like maybe 10? yeah, maybe around that. Yeah, and he's pretty young. But I think it taught you how to tie certain kind of knots, nautical knots, maybe. <laughs> right, right. I don't know. And Jonah, someone was saying, uh, did you get this too? Someone was saying at the end of the year in math class, they would always show a stand and deliver that movie. Okay. You know, what's weird is that like a theme and, and also one time they brought my whole grade. I was talking to some friends about this last night to be like, did I make this up? They brought my whole grade into this room called the LGI room and they showed us all this 1980s movie called um, Watcher in the Woods. That oh was my like, God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Which is like kind of a supernatural, yeah. sc- kind of scary and weirdly starring Kyle Richards of when she was a kid of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Like, so it, what was weird to me is that, I don't know if you noticed this, Lance, but it kind of feels like this applies to you watching Cypher in the Snow. Like we would be shown these movies that were at least like 10 years old. Right. <laughs> like a lot of stuff where it was like, you couldn't just show us something modern. <laughs> that was like had normal like looked like the normal stuff we would watch was like forbidden like you had yeah, to show us that stuff was. that was at least 10 years yeah and looked really yeah dated so you've yes. seen watcher in the woods it oh my god like. yeah i definitely recommend that people check it out it's so <laughs> visually striking like it's creepy it's spooky it has its own atmosphere to it don't you think it's weird that they brought my whole grade into like a room and played it for us? Like yeah, it must have been before bonkers. summer break or something. Yeah. And then other kids were telling me that um Jonah, you had Mrs. Delisle, right? In sixth grade. I think you did. You know, might you not have remember. Memory of this stuff than me. Someone was saying that Mrs. Delisle showed their class um the birds. Wow. On a break. So she also showed episodes of Twilight Zone. Not trying to burn Mrs. Delisle, but if she's listening to this. I don't want to make a different choice. Very beloved teacher. So I yeah. feel I feel okay making this, you know, who knows. Um, but then, yeah, I remember, I think that Mrs. Keicher, the art teacher, might have shown some kids it. Wow. I could be speaking out of turn, but like, I just do remember. And also, Lance, you were saying the projector thing. The thing that sort of, we sometimes would have stuff shown on a projector. And I don't know if you remember this, Jonah, but... Sometimes it would also be that cart that yeah. had a TV on oh, it yeah. and they would roll that cart into your classroom. And I remember always being excited about that because it meant they were going to pop a VHS tape in and you were going to get to watch TV in class, which always felt fun. And in retrospect, was probably so fun for the teacher too because they didn't have to... Like we thought we were getting a great deal. They were also getting a great deal. And they because were getting they didn't paid. Have, and they were, yeah, they were getting paid. You're right. They are getting the best deal. Yeah, it's just weird the stuff that teachers show you sometimes to teach you a lesson, sometimes just because they don't have, you know, a lesson, a lesson plan. plan. Yeah. I watched the Challenger launch on a TV on a cart. Wow. Live. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 We, I remember actually watching, I remember that day and I remember we were watching it in school too. So yeah, that was like a huge cultural moment, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't remember us watching that. Yeah, I remember. But maybe, yeah. Didn't you have a class? Weren't you in a class where there was like the teacher put a VHS tape in and someone had switched it with porn? I don't know if I was in the class, but that definitely happened. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Potentially a criminal offense in this yeah, day and age. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? But it's like VHS tapes, that would be so easy to do with a VHS tape. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think I was in the class. <laughs> I don't, but I think people were talking about it like it was literally like the biggest news in the world for like months. Yeah. Yeah. Did Crazy. people know that it was him or did he keep that low? Yeah, I think they knew. I think he immediately got in trouble. Like, I think he, it was, yeah. 
He probably, as much as he didn't want to get in trouble, he probably also wanted like the credit for it. Yeah. You know? So got shown all kinds of things at school. (laughs) (laughs) I guess is the lesson. Yeah. Cypher in the snow. Lance, when you were a kid watching stuff, were you kind of conscious of these more kind of, I don't know, like cinematography or kind of filmmaking aspects of it even before you were kind of making your own films? Thank you. I don't think I was completely conscious of the choices that were being made, but I would know that emotionally how Cypher in the Snow felt was different from other sort of like more scientific films with like a narrator Mm -hmm. and voiceover and music and graphics and quiet and things like that. Like you could tell that it felt alive in a different way or that the camera was where it wanted to be in a different way. Did you, you know, it sounds like you were kind of, you know, introspective kind of kid. And it's like, you know, I think of like watching, like I recently just rewatched all of Freaks and Geeks and, um, you know, they're kind of like relating to comedy. They're kind of like outcasts. Like, were you also into to comedy and that kind of stuff? Obviously you work a lot with yeah. a lot of comedians now or yeah. It, it, honestly, yeah. There were like things that you would just get. And even if they were meant to be comedy, they might come to you in a sad transmission. Like there was a English comedy called The Goodies. That's like three guys that could do kind of like physical comedy on 16 millimeter camera. Like they would do things with like stop motion or the camera cutting and then a banana is chasing a monkey or, you know, things like that that were visual. Kind of Monty Python with fewer people and maybe aimed more at kids than Monty Python. But like clearly people in England with a TV show who were aware of what the Monty Python guys were doing and had access to similar cameras, but were like a little bit goofier, broader for a younger audience. But when that gets broadcast on like a public broadcast station in the Philadelphia area onto like a black and white TV late at night, it all looks sadder and spookier sure. and stranger than like the colorful thing that you would have seen in England during the daytime. Right. And so those three guys, like there's like a rocket ship and they aren't, maybe they're not supposed to be on, but like somehow they end up accidentally going to the moon and then there's giant hamsters on the moon. And then they're kind of like cultural references that people would do in a comedy. Like if you're doing an impression of like a previous generation, like, right. I can't think of an example, but like if you, Vanessa on SNL did a parody of like, 80s jazzercise videos, like people in your age group would get it. But right. then when you move forward like another decade or two, it's like, what? why are they dressing in those clothes and dancing like that? Or, right. you know, yeah. they kind of become stranger. Or So if they do some reference to some 1940s English comedy trope, like it just makes no sense and seems strange to like a child in 1982. Right. right. And then it's intercut with like commercials for The Shining or whatever. Like, you know, so there are things like The Goodies or I don't know if you guys saw The Young Ones or there's a thing called Bad Trip that was like English people doing like heavy metal and a tour and things going wrong. It was kind of pre-Spinal Tap. Okay. Like strange things like that that would cross my transom by being on late night Philadelphia Airwaves on like a black and white nine inch television late at night under the blankets or something. I would recommend that people watch the Young Ones and uh, that tour, that Bad News tour. Yeah. The Great. Scene. <laughs> Great. Star, kind of pre-Spinal Tap rock parodies. Great. Um, so yeah, I was seeing stuff like that and it was resonating and, and stuck with me. And then other things that would just be on cable TV, like Mel Brooks movies. And I got to direct, uh, like I definitely as a child saw History of the World. And yeah. I liked his other things better. I liked, you know, Young Frankenstein, Spaceballs or other ones more, but like definitely watched History of the World and then got to direct part of History of the World Part Two, forty seven 47 or 48 years later, which is Yes, insane. incredible. <laughs> I saw, yeah, how cool. 
That's yeah. so great. So it's very grateful yeah. to get brought in for that and uh, had a great experience and, and it's yeah. on Hulu and people should watch it. Yes. And Mel Brooks, like yeah, Mel Brooks. incredible. Yeah. I made something with Mel Brooks like a decade ago at the Chateau Marmont. He came to be on a thing that I made with John Hodgman called wow. In Residence. And we were so happy to film with Mel Brooks and he was great. But I was also conscious, like I had my daughter Glory there with me of like getting her to meet him and being like, wow, this is probably the last chance that I'll get to have a shot at working with Mel Brooks or whatever. And then like a decade goes by and he's like executive producing. Yes. Another thing that I dragged in. It's like, oh no, he's still chugging along making things. So cool. Yeah. So cool. Well, I think we're going to take another commercial break and we'll be right back with the incredible Lance Bangs. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia and Yellow, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks, streaming exclusively on Max, and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Okay, and we're back. So Lance, now we're going to play this game with you called Change.Dork, otherwise known as Let's Make Fun of People Who Don't Know How to Use Change.Org. And in this game, we'll bring up three different petitions that people are trying to, uh, for like sort of a lot of times for like nostalgic things that people are trying to bring back on Change.Org. And at the end of like hearing these three petitions, we'll, we'll each kind of decide which one we would sign if we had to sign one of them. Right on. Okay. I can start us off with this first one. Let's get uh, into it. Okay, let's get into it. It's called Change Scooby-Doo Fruit Snacks Back. So this person says, Scooby-Doo themed fruit snacks made by Betty Crocker have always been a childhood favorite of mine and others alike, particularly the blue Scooby-Doo shaped one, the one most people got their enjoyment of the snack from. 
There was no greater feeling than tearing open a package and finding two or three Scooby-shaped ones. Kids would rejoice, feeling as though they had been blessed with good enough luck to get multiple pieces of the best flavor in one pack. Unfortunately, sometime in the past year, Betty Crocker has changed their fruit snacks entirely. They are now no longer the same Scoobies we all know and love. They are now semi-transparent colors with all different tastes than what they used to be. So they're saying, I won't read the whole thing, but the Scooby-Doo one is no longer an opaque light blue, doesn't taste the same. And so this person says, "Um, I wish to ask Betty Crocker on behalf of myself and thousands of others to simply return to the way they make these fruit snacks back in the way they once were before the change in taste and color shattered the hearts of many, many people who once knew these as a memorable part of their childhood. I want to be able to enjoy them again, blah, 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 blah. Um, With the bottom of my heart, I wish for nothing more than to get this issue resolved. Now, I'm going to look at how many people... So this petition was made out, I believe, to Betty Crocker. It's got 3,661 supporters. Okay. So kind of a lot. Yeah, a lot of supporters. Now, here's my question. This person uh, seems like they're an adult now. I think the thing about fruit snacks like these are you sort of grow out of them generally. So... Like if they change the formulation, you wouldn't necessarily notice because well, you're okay. I think it depends. I, I as an adult have enjoyed you know more than a few bags of Welch's fruit snacks, mm-hmm. so I can relate. But I will say, a blue fruit snack to me does not sound good. And also, you as an adult probably haven't had a ton of like animation themed fruits. I'm not judging you, but like right, right. Fair, you're not fair. eating a ton of Scooby Doo themed. But but right. by the way, maybe so. A- anyways, uh, Lance, what do you think about this petition? <laughs> I I have a lot of questions. How does one come across this petition? Like, are people on forums talking about right fruit snacks, or where does this where does it get? How does one come across this? Such a good question. I think people sometimes share their petitions on social media. Um, maybe other people were thinking the same thing and they looked it up to see if this existed and then they signed it. That's a really great question because yeah, 3,661 people have signed it. Are there Facebook groups about fruit snacks? Maybe. Yeah. You know, but to your to your to your point, Lance, what we have found with these petitions is a lot of times the people they're made out to, for example, this one's made out to Betty Crocker. It's not sent to Betty Crocker. It's just, they say Betty Crocker. So there's a, I don't know that this would be brought to Betty Crocker's attention unless someone directly sent it to them. Because just writing their name out on the petition doesn't necessarily signal to them that this is happening. Yeah, it's it's strange. I want to add that there's a comment on this, Vanessa. I don't know if you saw it. Oh. But it says... I bought some Scooby-Doo snack, fruit snacks this week specifically for the opaque blue ones. My boyfriend wanted Pokemon fruit snacks and we got in a fight because he said the Squirtle ones were probably opaque blue and I was like, absolutely not. And now we're both wrong. Change them back. So it's like, hmm. I don't want to say you're not mature enough to be in a relationship <laughs> if you and your partner are fighting about uh, the, which animation you want on your fruit snack. But, uh, but that's, yeah, that's an interesting take. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't mind if people have little things to kind of like have a conversation about. Like it might add to your relationship to be like, oh, I thought it was going to be opaque. I remember it different. Like, yeah, that's, a that's fun, true. Non uh, personality based thing to kind of both have an <laughs> yeah. opinion about. Yeah. Where it's not like your breath, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not a real loaded topic. Yeah, exactly. your mom's a bitch. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a safe, Vanessa, a safe that was a place big for 
defining yourself differently from each other. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You know what, Lance? Actually, I'm I'm going to change change my my cynical stance yet again and come around to your <laughs> side, come around to the more open-minded side because I totally agree with that. I think that's a really good point. But yeah, there are quite a few comments on here where, uh, yeah, someone wrote, this is so important. I was so sad when I opened up a pack and discovered the Scoobies weren't the same. Maybe these are people of kids, actually. It's possible. And they're trying their kids' Scooby snacks. And again, I don't judge anyone who's an adult who's buying Scooby snacks, although I guess that's exactly what I'm doing. But um, it just feels like... I also like change generally. I like when things are different. And I, you know, I don't know the reasoning behind... Is it Betty, Betsy Crocker? Betty, Betty Crocker, Crocker yes, yeah. But like, it could be that like, oh, the carcinogenic blue yes. five is no longer yeah. sellable in the state of California. That's why it's slightly less opaque. And generally yeah. when something doesn't taste, quote unquote, as good, it's because it's healthier. Right. So yeah. maybe take that into account. Okay, Jonah, do you want to read this next one? Some really good points. Um, yeah, so this next one is pretty short. It's called Make Chess an Olympic Sport. Oh, which, yeah, this is not one I've seen before. Um, it says this one is made out just to chess players. So I don't know how, <laughs> where that goes, but, yeah. uh, you know, it says far too long. Chess and chess players alike have been silenced and forgotten in their communities. The ancient game played by many intellectually superior athletes has the opportunity to gain the recognition it deserves. Many sports that are in the Olympics require their athletes to have strong muscles. However, the strongest muscle in our bodies is our brains. Chess is a sport which exercises one's brain to the highest degree. Therefore, it should be included in the Olympic Games. And it goes on and on. Um, and they also say it can be played during COVID, virtually and online, making it safe. Lance, what do you think about making chess an Olympic sport? What are your thoughts on that? I think that? that's a great idea. That's what this yeah. kind of uh, change.org thing is, org thing is probably best suited for. That's a good idea that someone had. They can build momentum for it. Any reasonable person can hear it and be like, have an opinion, yes or no. But yeah, why not? Like it, it's so many people could become eligible to consider themselves Olympic contenders. Uh-huh. Sure, a lot of like fourth graders could be like, "I this is my shot. This is my path." I think that's great. Yeah, I think it's great too. I think you know chess is, is does require a lot of brain power. You know, I, Vanessa recently got me um, when I was in LA last time. I was Vanessa had a Rubik's cube. Yes, and I was messing around with it a lot making no progress. Vanessa recently got me a, a keychain Rubik's Cube just with four squares. Mm-hmm. I keep it in my jacket pocket and I use it all the time and I have not so gotten cool. anywhere near solving it. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it is tough. So it's like, yeah, this stuff requires a lot of brain power. And I think, yeah, why not? I think, why mm-hmm. not? Why shouldn't it be? What do you think, Vanessa? Well, I think n- not a lot of people agree with you guys because only 38 people have signed. <laughs> <laughs> and... Look, here's my only thing about this is I think there's something to like the showmanship of the Olympics and that it's generally kind of a physical uh, test of whatever. I worry that if you included chess, which, yeah, uh, a lot of people loved Queen's Gambit. Is that what it was called? Yeah, yeah, I I thought it was good. Yeah, yeah. Um, But like, I think the show was good not because you were necessarily following the chess game, but more because of like the drama of the show. I just worry that watching someone else's chess game, unless you're truly, it's just like a little bit of a harder thing, unless you like really educated yourself on chess. And again, I'm not trying to, but like by the, by those standards too, would you have to include, like, could you, would you include like spelling bees? Would you include uh, Rubik's cubes competitions? Like you said, John, like there's so many brain things. You almost would want to have 
like almost a separate kind of Olympics that's maybe called something else for more intellectual games and absolutely no one would watch it. <laughs> but but like, yeah, I want to see this at the Olympics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, look, I don't know. I, I just feel like uh, the kind of the the presentation quality of watching uh, someone play chess might not be as entertaining. But look, I don't watch the Olympics a lot because they really stress me out because I always feel bad. I always want everyone to win. <laughs> and I feel bad, especially during figure skating when people mess up. So I guess I feel like I, I'm not the one to be the judge of this necessarily. I just think it's kind of a slippery slope if you start including brain sure, games sure. and also a, a viewership nightmare. Okay. <laughs> I, I want to add that one thing that is not going for this petition is the image like the torso lower torso of a cat and then a black i mean it doesn't really yeah yeah it's a strange i think they could have put a little more work into this petition and also making the petition made out to chess players as opposed to to the olympics it's like yeah what i don't even know speaking of brain games i don't know if this person knows how (laughs) speaking of intellectuality intellect is that a word who's talking. But the point is just speaking of like being smart, I don't know if this person was super smart about the way they did this petition. Okay. All right. I'm I'm for it. Okay. Okay. Lance is for it. Lance is for it. For the record, Lance is for it. Okay. Love to hear that. Love to hear that. Okay. Now this last one, uh, Jonah and I thought was very funny. It's called Fandom Summer Camp. So this person found on Pinterest this thing that says... Why isn't there a summer camp for fandoms and we can all meet at the end of the summer, our idols come and do a concert and meet and greet? Okay, so the so the petition is, I know a lot of people would love this so much, including me. So I decided to make a petition for it because why not? And if it does happen, I know I will be going. Okay, so the person doesn't do a great job of explaining what they're asking for, but this person says in all caps, actually meeting. And then instead of just, talking over the internet a bunch of my fandom friends and then at the end of and then at the end of possibly meeting Rick Rorden, Susan Suzanne Collins, Veronica Roth, Marissa Meyer, Lynn Manuel Miranda or any of my favorite authors and or actresses would be so amazing. And I just want to put this out there in case other people would want to and I know they would. So please if lots of people vote for this, please consider it summer camp. Ma- please consider it summer camp makers, because I know it'd be a hit. We could be in can. We could be in cabins sorted by fandom. Have a camp half blood type of layout for the camp. Cosplay our favorite characters. Take writing slash singing slash acting lessons from our favorite authors slash actors slash actresses. And ah, I can't even imagine how amazing that'd be. So I think this person wants to have a fandom camp where they're divided in camp cabins by what they're fans of. And then the people they're fans of, they get to take like workshops from and meet at the end of the summer. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is, there's just like a person is one step away from completely being able to achieve this. Like there's somebody right yeah. now that's trying to book a venue in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania <laughs> or Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, and they're struggling and they can't get enough audience and they they wish that they could book Gia Margaret or whatever. And they, you know, like that person who has that skill set of like booking a venue just needs to find out what the appearance fee of Lin-Manuel Miranda is or yes. Rick Riordan or these other people. And it's going to be $5,000 to leave New York City and come do an afternoon, you know, if they were going to go speak at a college in Pennsylvania, like yeah. what they would charge. And then that person just needs to do the math of like, how do I get these fandom people in like 
could they each pay $3,000 to come for a week to a camp in the Catskills? Right. And then, like, book that otherwise empty Catskills camp. Yeah. And then pay the appearance fee of $5,000 to get Rick Bjorden. Or, you know what I mean? Like, it is doable. And someone who has those skills could make a bunch of money off of these fandoms. I don't know that world, but, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know the people that try and promote or put on events that, like, wish that more people had come out for, like, the Super Chunk concert or whatever that could apparently, like, fill camps of fans. So, Lance, you're saying you think you, you, know, you could connect this person with some people who can make this happen, possibly. I feel like in certain regions of the country where it's not okay. that big of an ask for, like, hey, can you leave your apartment in New York and go across to Pennsylvania to, on a Sunday afternoon, like, shake hands and take photos and, and talk for 90 minutes about storytelling to very appreciative fans who spent the week dressing up as characters that you previously created. I think you'd have to pay these people like a million (laughs) dollars. I think there are these like appearance booking companies that like... Yeah, yeah. If if Penn State wants Lin-Manuel to go... Yes, yes. ...lecture, there is a fee of this many thousand dollars for him to go do it. But to go stay overnight at a camp... I don't think they have to go overnight. I think that like you run the thing for the week and then on the Sunday afternoon at the end of it, that's when Rick Riordan or whoever is there to like talk about storytelling for 90 minutes and post well, I th- photos. Well, I think that that's true. I think this person maybe thinks that people are just going to be like Around. accessible at the camp, just kind of hanging, hoping, hoping they think one that of their fans. Well, is like yeah. teaching archery all week long. Yeah. 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 I can't, I can't make that happen. Like imagine <laughs> if Lin-Manuel Miranda was like, he, like there were like these super fans who were like singing Hamilton all weekend and right. just like a, and then, like, that's already kind of like a charged up group to meet, okay? Especially because this person's writing, I'm not going to do it, but this person's probably, like, 14 or something. Like, can you, it's going to be the kind of thing where they meet Lin-Manuel and they're like, oh, my God, you're my favorite person in the world. Oh, my God, is Lin-Manuel. Like, you know what I mean? It's going to be, like, being around those kinds of teenagers, such, like, kids. Like, it's going to be, like, the most intense, like, so it's, like, fandom people. So you have to, like, take that into account. Is like, they're not going to be cool about it okay they're not gonna right. act like jonah was when when you guys took us to dinner so um it's gonna be full circle so it's gonna be callback so it's gonna be so such intense teenagers and then i think this person is i think that they would they want a concert and also a meet and greet but i think what this person is sort of asking for is cosplay our favorite character so they're so imagine so these people have also been cosplaying Lin-Manuel okay. all week okay <laughs> all week they've been like pretending to be him and then um, take writing slash singing slash acting lessons from our favorite <laughs> so they want to take so it's sort of like they change in the description what they're asking for because at the beginning what this person had put on Pinterest that this person picked up on was just like at the end of the summer we get to meet them one day and, and meet a green what this person's asking for is like we get to take lessons from them Right. Like this is again. I think you're going to have to pay each person, even if they're only there for a day, a million dollars. <laughs> this is going to be an expensive camp. <laughs> it could be expensive, but again, like when they said Rick Riordan, I really think that if they're being divided up into Percy Jackson themed bunks and dressing up and doing rowing competitions among themselves, and then on the final day, he shows up and signs copies of books and talks about characters or whatever. Maybe that's enough for. A $3,000 a person camp experience? 
No, let me ask this. For the for our listeners who don't know who Rick Riordan is, can you explain who he is? He wrote Percy Jackson and the Olympians right. series. Okay. And like, you know, 30 million books. Like, okay. You know, he's like a very successful contemporary writer okay. for young readers. I know that. Okay. But I just didn't know if some of our... I'm just kidding. I had no idea who it was, but I had heard <laughs> of the name. That was familiar with the name. Yeah. But like, I guess, so I guess the, I guess the point that you're making, Lance, is maybe if we manage the expectations of this camp, like if we yeah. manage the expectations of the campers, then maybe why not, um, why, why couldn't, why, why not this camp? Yeah. One could get on a cruise with the Impractical Jokers yes. within the next three months. If like yes. if that's your fandom yeah. and you're sleeping and people are pulling pranks and you're yes. hearing stand-up comedy from people from their world or aesthetic, like those things do exist in that kind of like weird cruise ship deal. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess I feel, you know, like this fandom or like fan service or these things um, are just, you know, and not to make it, you know, again, me being cynical or generational, but, but I feel like, you know, a really formative experience for me was my mom took me to see... Guns N' Roses in 1991, a user illusion tour. Incredible, formative, life-changing experience. At no point did I think like, I should be able to just like hang out with them, meet the band. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just like that. That's just not something, like we're, I'm like a 13-year-old kid. Like, this is just not in the realm of the universe of possibilities. Mm -hmm. Um, If if there had been a Paradise City rock camp, how much (laughs) would you have asked you, like, what would you have expected your parents to like? Great question. Put up for something like that? For you to go for a week and like learn guitar from Slash. Yeah. I mean, that you're no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I was actually was really bummed because, uh, and Vanessa, this isn't your fault, but Vanessa got (laughs) uh, bought mitzvah in Israel the same week that the Metallica Guns N' Roses tour came to Cleveland. Um, Oh my God. I didn't, Jonah, you never told me that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what's funny is mom and dad actually felt so bad that they offered to take me to the show in Columbus, I think. Whoa. Um, And I don't know why I didn't take them up on that. Yeah. I had no idea this controversy was going on. Yeah, yeah, I was very upset because those are like my two favorite bands. This is probably like early, not early to mid nineties. But, but yeah, again, if that existed, yes, Lance, to answer your question, I would be totally into it. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect it, I guess, right. or I wouldn't advocate for it. It would be more, um, yeah, I don't know. So there's a lot happening here. I well, I, the other thing I was just thinking of is like, would there be? scholarships for kids, like it would be so expensive would be the issue too. Right, would yeah, it just right. end up being so, all these rich kids? Yeah, yes. Vanessa, Vanessa, but you could open up, it up yeah. to like, you know, five slots of mm-hmm. campers that anonymously didn't have the same resources. Right, yeah. right, right. Sure, sure. And there's an article actually in the New Yorker this month about private concerts, like all these artists now that will do private events or yeah. like play bar mitzvahs for these kind of exorbitant fees. So yeah, people are willing to pay it. That's fine. I'm not sure this person is willing to pay it. And I'm not sure there's a group of people, but yeah, if people want to support this and they can make it happen, sure. Why not? I, Lance, you've been so much more positive about Lance, all of you're these a petitions. But I have now- a positive take on the competitiveness of the replacements now. Part of the reason <laughs> that we know and love all of their songs that they were able to write and record it's because they were more competitive than Run Westy Run or the Wallets or the Suburbs. Sure. Yeah. Bands of their same milieu and scene and city. Yeah. And maybe that competitiveness is why they broke through to us and a larger audience than some of those other bands. Yeah, okay. I think that's true. Well, I think competitive can be a really positive, you know, way Motivating. to yeah, yeah, to to take your your whatever you're working on to the next level. So so fair enough. That's a really good point, Lance. Yeah. 
All right, now the moment of truth. We have to decide if each of us had to sign one of these petitions, which one would we sign? And just to remind you of what the petitions are, the first one was change Scooby-Doo fruit snacks back. The second one was make chess an Olympic sport. And the third one was fandom summer camp. Lance. I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. I'm going to go with chess as a sport. Um, I, you know, to me, the, the Scooby snacks, I can't get, can't really get behind that one. The, the fandom thing, not for me, but, but yeah, chess as a sport. I do think it requires a lot of skill, a lot of intellectual prowess and, um, yeah, why not? Why not? I think we should recognize, you know, that kind of intelligence in our society and not only recognize it, but celebrate it. And like Lance said, like the replacements in REM, Maybe that competitiveness can help these players go to the next level. Lance, what do you think? I'm definitely chess as an Olympic sport supporter. Okay. I think yeah. that's like a realistic thing. And even if it doesn't get to the level of Olympics qualification, I think that either people could tell each other like, hey, dummy, there is a international yearly competition. That's what the Olympics of chess is. Here's how to enter. See you there. Yep. And I think that also people that really want to go hear Lin-Manuel Miranda speak or show them archery or whatever, I bet he does some kind of lectures or events or workshops sure. or something in some form. So maybe that means that you're going to like the Daughters of the American whatever place in D.C. to go see him speak there. Yeah, he's he's not like J.D. Salinger. He's around. Yeah. <laughs> <Good job. laughs> um, Vanessa, what about you? Honestly, I'm shocked that I'm going to say this because I thought it was kind of stupid at first, but... <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to sign change Scooby Doo fruit snacks back because <laughs> to me it feels like the most realistic and also I don't know I I feel like give these poor these people are really like feel so passionate passionately about it and um I don't necessarily feel as strongly about this in particular but like I would love if they would bring Squeezits back even though I never it would drink them as an adult so there's something nostalgic and sweet about it so I want to bring back Scooby-Doo fruit snacks. All right. I can solve that problem for everyone. Go on eBay, <laughs> search for expired, out-of-date Scooby-Doo snacks from whatever the cutoff when they got rid of blue dye carcinogen number five or whatever. Yep. And I'm sure that you can buy a, a pallet or a caseload of those and, and gradually eat those whenever you need to. Fair enough. Yeah, when you're like about to do a cleanse or something so that they don't <laughs> stick. In your... Well, that was so much fun, Lance. Thank you so much for doing this. Now that yeah. we've decided which petitions we should uh, we would sign, where can people find you? I mean, I know you're you always have so much stuff coming up, but what are some things that people can check out? Yeah, there's uh, on Hulu right now is History of the World Part Two, the Mel Brooks series that I directed part of. We made a Jackass film called Jackass Forever that came out last year. Another thing for Netflix called Jackass Four Point Five that's like another feature-length thing of things that didn't make it into the movie. Great. Um, Vanessa stars in the music video for George Harrison for My Sweet Lord, uh, which yes. is a great song, and I'm proud of how that, that film it video came out. It turned out so great. It turned yeah. out so great, yeah. And then coming up this summer, uh, I made a feature film that Jonah kind of talked about, the bands under the umbrella of the Elephant Six recording company, uh, Nutramilk Hotel, Olivia Tremor Control, Apples and Stereo, Elf Power, a bunch of other great artists and musicians. Primarily Athens, Georgia in the 1990s. There's a feature film that'll be out in movie theaters. It got like national distribution coming out later this year. We can't, uh, they haven't announced like the date yet, but like people can look for it in theaters uh, this year. I'm going to make a bunch of great stuff for a musician that I love from Chicago. Uh, her name is Gia Margaret. 
And I've made like a, a conceptual thing for every song on a new record that she just put out. The record's called Romantic Piano, and those will be uh, appearing in upcoming months. And uh, yeah, I just love making things. Yeah, clearly. And you've made so many incredible things and people got to check them out. Thank you so much, Lance. This has been so much fun. Thanks to everyone for listening. And if you enjoyed this, please subscribe to the podcast and keep an eye out for next week's episode of How Did We Get Weird? Where we will discuss more stories from our childhood and cultural touchstones like educational and odd shows that we watched in school. Um, Thank you so much, Lance. This was so much fun. All right. Take care, everybody. You too. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.